once I was in that sort of curious scientist mode, it was a game changer. I wasn't anymore sort of battling with these rigid diagnoses to try to figure out you know, what was going to fix the problem because nothing's going to fix it. This is the way his brain is. Hi, I'm Rivki Silver. And I'm Alex Wuxer. And this is Normal From Women, the podcast where we embrace the complexities, nuances, and joys of from womanhood. If you live in a larger Jewish community, you may have seen the free local advertising magazine, but have you seen one that is also filled with fun and informational content for the whole family? The Cleveland Corner is a free monthly magazine that is filled with a new spread of activities, pictures, recipes, current dominating times and shirim, contests, and more each month. Being the only from monthly magazine with the ever-growing from community, this is the place to advertise your business in Cleveland and have it noticed. To place an advertisement or to join the mailing list, contact them at theclevelandcorner at gmail.com. To view current and previous issues as well as to learn more, visit the website at clecornermag.com and you can follow them on Instagram at the Cleveland Corner. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Normal for Women. Today's topic is parenting neurodiverse children. And something that we try to do on the podcast is to address issues that so many of us are going through, you know, make it normal. <laughs> yes, totally. And there's, there's really something to talking about things out loud, naming them, getting them in the open that's both healthy and validating within reason and normal boundaries also. But this is why podcasting is really perfect for this. We get to choose the topics that are meaningful to us, but also ones that we think will be meaningful and interesting to you, our listeners. Right. So this podcast is for the parents out there who may be raising a neurodiverse child. I'm one of them. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) And I think this podcast also will be interesting for anyone who works with kids in any capacity. Let's first define what we're talking about when we say and use the term neurodiverse. The term comes from brain imaging, actually. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. There are a number of brain studies that show that people with learning or thinking differences are wired differently than their peers. In other words, some of us may be born with brains that think, learn, and process differently than others. And then in contrast, you've got the term neurotypical. And by the way, these terms are relatively new, Mm -hmm. um, which really indicates the way we've shifted and how we view people with we may have called them disabilities in the past, but really now we're reframing them as, as differences. But neurotypical describes you know, people with typical developmental, intellectual, and cognitive abilities. Neurodiversity came about in the 1990s, coined by a sociologist who had autism. And the idea is that there are certain developmental disorders that are normal variations in the brain. And people who have these features also have certain strengths. Right. So it's not looks should be looked at as a negative thing. It's also let's see how um, there are positive, you know, outcomes and positive characteristics of people with these um, neurological differences. hundred percent. Over the years, I'd just like to mention that this term has come to include ADHD, dyslexia, other learning disorders, not just autism spectrum disorder, which is where it originated with. Amazing. So really, it's really like a paradigm shift to focus on brain differences, not deficits, not as in like the, um, oh, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do this thing that this other boy can do? Well, maybe because, you know, the the brain is different. Um, Mm -hmm. A wider view of quote unquote normal. Mm -hmm. And there's so many of us that either fit these criteria ourselves or are parenting children who fit this criteria. And 
you know, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to just do an episode of this. Let's talk about it, explore it, support each other, and learn more about how we can be better parents to our neurodiverse kids. Because if you've had any experience with this, you know that sometimes it can throw you for some serious curveballs. <laughs> oh, yes. I am all in for this episode, Rivki. <laughs> so the best part, I think, is uh, our discussion coming up in a little bit with Dr. Alyssa Bass. I want to tell you a little bit about her. Um, Dr. Bass is passionate about helping parents appreciate and connect to their most difficult children, often the ones that we don't want to connect <laughs> with. She's trained as a clinical psychologist at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She studies developmental psychology at Stanford University. And in addition to these academic credentials and perhaps most important, Dr. Bass is a mother of four unique and wonderful children. Reframe. Mm -hmm. Her personal journey as a parent of a child with multiple hidden differences gives her really a deep compassion for the complexity of parents and children who these just popular parenting books are just not written for. Uh, Dr. Bass lives and works in private practice in Jerusalem. And she's also currently offering an online course called Hidden Differences, which is designed to help those with differently wired family members, not just children, but any family member, which is really, really important to note. And we're going to put the link to, the, to Dr. Bass's website and all her information about that course in the show notes. Uh, fantastic. Before we get into this interview, we asked a few normal firm women the following question. What do you wish you knew at the beginning of your parenting journey in raising your neurodiverse child? And this is what they said. Hey, I wish I would have known at the beginning of my journey with many children of these types um, that all children are not the same, that all children's brains are not the same, even within one family, even your own children, and that each child has to be looked at as its own person with its own um, deficits and uh, giftedness in different areas and that the school system that is set up for our community as well as most of the public school community and non-Jewish community is set up for a certain type of child with a certain type of brain with a certain type of nervous system. And I would assume over 50% of kids don't fit into that. So you as a parent have to advocate at all junctures with your child um, to let principals know, to let administrators know that you are going to stand behind your child for the type of brain that they have, for the type of nervous system that they have, and you'd like to work together with them to figure out how to help this child succeed and not to cowtail to what they say and to allow them to put your child into this very narrow box that your child clearly can't fit into. Um, the last thing quickly, if I would have known from the beginning that I could, I mean, I figured this out as time went on, but if I could figure it right from the beginning to each child who's starting on that journey to just keep pumping that child up, that they don't have to be like everyone else, that everybody is different, not just them, that there are many children who can't sit in a classroom or who can't, who, who feel nervous sometimes or whatever, and just to let that child know that they are loved for exactly who they are and that with help and with a team behind them, they're going to succeed just like any other child. Good luck. I first want to say that I think gifted and ADHD go together. As a mother and as a teacher, I definitely see this. And what I really want is the stigma of ADHD 
and a child taking medicine to go away because while some children don't need medicine and will not benefit from it, some children definitely will. And I have seen both as a teacher and as a parent that it helps. Sometimes they only need a little bit and sometimes they need a lot. But there shouldn't be a stigma against taking medicine because the medicine is there to help and no one should be embarrassed. Hi, so I actually have three children who have diagnoses out of four. One, my oldest has autism. He's a Aspie, Asperger's, he's 16. I have a 14-year-old daughter who has ADD and I have an eight-year-old boy who has what they call complex ADHD. Um, what I wish I knew at the very beginning, thankfully my husband is a neurologist, so I knew the ins and outs of the diagnosis um, pretty much early on. My, my son was diagnosed when he was three. Um, with autism. So I knew the ins and outs. I knew what to expect. I knew a whole thing from textbook. I knew intellectually, but I did not know emotionally what to expect. I wish that I knew how to shelve my own ego and learn to see the world the way he sees it because we're living in different worlds in a way. I wish that I had learned how important it was for me to handle frustration I wish I knew, I wish I understood the level of empathy I would have to have. I know this is making me sound like I'm a horrible mom. <laughs> I like to think that I'm not. My son, thank God, is mainstreamed. He's totally functional. I, I, it's almost like, it's, I always say to him, it's not a disability, you're just hardwired different. You have gifts, but with gifts come drawbacks. I've always tried to remain positive, but I always haven't been able to contain frustration. And instead of getting frustrated and angry with him, I should have learned to channel that. I wish I knew then how better to handle my own emotions. So I guess that's the one thing that I wish I knew just how important it was to do that. You can say, oh, it's important. It's not just important, it's vital. Well, I just want to say about this montage that the rawness and the Kansanness here is, is truly inspiring. And I think about, you know, you first get married, you have kids in the beginning and they're so cute, but no one imagines that for many, this is going to be a journey that includes testing and evaluations and diagnoses. And then like, once you have that paperwork, you know, in your hands, it's just the very beginning where it's managing that child and it's those diagnoses at home and at school, which is so huge and time consuming and emotionally draining at times. It can you know, be very overwhelming. Um, I know from personal experience, but I just found this so incredible listening to these women and just how they handled it, what they wish they knew, honesty about the mistakes that they made and, and the successes that they've had as well. Absolutely. And I think that that's um, one of the things that I, I do want to just bring out before we get into the interview is that sometimes when you are parenting a neurodiverse child, um, until you realize maybe what's going on, especially with the hidden differences, you know, when something like, you're like, but everything seems to be like, it should be functioning, but it's not functioning. Why is that? It can really cause a lot of self-doubt of your own parenting abilities. You know, there can be a lot of like blaming yourself for like, oh, if I only was a different kind of mother, then everything would be okay. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, personal development that can really come through this parenting experience, um, but can, you know, it can be very, 
intense. And I also can sometimes feel like a game of whack-a-mole where, yeah, once you get the evaluation, but then something else comes up. And then once you get the paperwork and then something else comes up and then you need to jump to this hoop, but then something else comes up. And maybe you do this intervention, but then something else comes up. So it's, you Oh know. my gosh, you're stressing me out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's okay. It's all good. But you know, one of the mothers who we, who shared a voice that we didn't get to include, she had mentioned about how, when she realized how one of her own character traits of, of perfectionism was really kind of affecting the anxiety level of her child. Um, she, she said, you know, I had, that she had tried to avoid certain parenting things that she had experienced in her childhood that she didn't want to, you know, give to her children. Right. Um, but then she was like, I didn't see this coming. And she shared that, you know, having a child with this particular challenge really had led to a tremendous amount of personal growth and development on her, on her part, you know, as a human, right. Okay. So now we finally bring you our conversation with Dr. Bass. We really feel privileged to learn all about this topic from her, and we hope that you find it interesting and helpful as well. Dr. Bass, we are so excited for you to join us on today's episode of Normal from Women. And this is a topic that is near and dear to Alex and I's heart and to a lot of our friends and to, I know, a lot of our listeners. We've had a lot of people express excitement about this episode. So could you please start off by telling us a little bit about what you do professionally and how you got into your field? Sure. So by profession, I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, and, and now I am sort of branching into this passion project that I have to create a community um, and education for from women um, who have children who are differently wired, neurodiverse, with hidden differences, whatever. We'll kind of get into the language of it as the episode goes on. Um, so it's not so interesting how I decided to be a clinical psychologist. That's kind of, you know, my mom is one and I'm good with people and, you know, all those things people say. But how I got into this passion project is, um, uh, you know, I went to Stanford undergraduate. I had a PhD. I spent hours and hours and hours learning about child development and psychology. And so I arrogantly thought I was going to be a really prepared mom. Uh, and then, <laughs> haha, um, I had this child who was having these really long, um, intense meltdowns. And, you know, in my sort of fashion, I read everything I could and I called supervisors and friends and colleagues. And, um, and I was mostly met with like, you know, you're kind of an anxious first time mom, like two year olds have meltdowns. And, and I realize now in retrospect that that was coming from a lot of um, people wanting to help me feel better about it, but it was a very painful phase of my life where I felt very alone, um, was convinced that I must be doing something terribly wrong because he was awesome in school. Um, and that was really the birth of my whole journey of understanding neurodiversity, understanding my son, understanding our family. Um, and helping other women do the same. Oh, wow. Can you share a little bit about that journey of, um, you know, this is obviously personal and that's up to you how detailed you want to get, but at what point did you realize, oh, I need an evaluation, I need a diagnosis, especially since that, that's the field that you're coming from? Right. Like at what point were you like, oh, this, this is actually not just me being an anxious first time mom. There's actually mm -hmm. something deeper going on here. And I just, I want to say like, I really relate to the whole, I must be doing something wrong. And that loneliness and like the feeling of like, but it's not supposed to be like this, but what's going on. Right. Right. I, it's, a, it's very, very isolating. And as I work with um, particularly mothers in this situation, I, 
I hear that a lot. There's a very lonely, um, very, very um, self-critical and also very guilty. Like I, I should be able to help my child self-regulate. I should be able to soothe them. I should be able to, you know, I'm the mommy. I should be able to make it good. And and it's just so much bigger than that. So in response to your question, I think because of my professional background, I was the opposite. I was like looking for a diagnosis, you know, from day one. And so I brought him to a supervisor who worked with children and she was like, he's gifted. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like gifted kids are, they're intense. And I was like, this is really intense. You know, this is really, really intense. And, and he's not always intense. Sometimes, it, you know, everything looks so normal and sometimes, and, you know, and she was just kind of like, you need to calm down your anxiety and you need to, you know, and, and then we sort of went down the, I must be an anxious mom. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that I'm not an anxious mom, but I would say within normal, you know, Ashkenazi limits. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it comes with the genes. But, um, I think I was always looking through this medical model lens. And I think what I love about the term neurodiversity, what I love about the whole sort of movement of saying, you know, people have really different brains and people may experience a ton of stress in the world because of their different brains. And it doesn't necessarily have to be pathology. It doesn't necessarily, like, you know, kids with lots and lots of activity, we can call it ADHD if we need to, to get them services, or we can just kind of go, they're awesome and they're going to be an entrepreneur and school's going to be torturous and just leave it at that, right? <laughs> so, uh, and, and I don't want to minimize kids who need the diagnosis to get the services they need. But um, when I was stuck in that medical model lens of like, what diagnosis, what checklist fits my son? I was busy reading everything. Is it anxiety? Is it profound giftedness? Is it high functioning autism? Is it ADHD? Is it, you know, and everything I read, I was like, Oh, oh, maybe it's that. No, no, maybe it's that. Maybe it's, you know, and I, and I couldn't figure out this piece of like, and sometimes it's none of those things. And he looks like every other child at the playground and maybe I'm just a bad mom. And I would just like cycle in that um, until I came to the social model of disability, which was like a huge aha moment and game changer in my family, which is this, this model of neurodiversity that says like, you know, some people are disabled by environments. And I was like, Ooh, what, what does that mean? You know, does that, you know, and, and what it means is my child, who's this spunky, interesting great kid with great social skills. And, you know, at five o'clock in a crowded shoe store, that environment disables him. It's too overwhelming. His sensory needs just go like haywire and his brain sort of short circuits. And so, you know, I had this three-year-old who was a joy at school and everybody loved him. And I was petrified to go into a shoe store with him. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so that model of like, oh, there are things that disable my child. That made sense to me. Right. I wasn't looking through that model of the medical model goes like, if you have diabetes, you have diabetes. You always, you know, have some kind of insulin imbalance that needs to be corrected. My child doesn't always have anything, right? I mean, he has some sensitivities, but some days they're better and some days they're worse. And if he's eaten and slept and everything is fine, then maybe the shoe store wouldn't be overstimulating. And and that just really helped me reframe what was happening in our family. And, And then I got curious and I was trying to sort of figure out what the environments were, what he could do, what he couldn't do, what his sensitivities were. And once I was in that sort of curious scientist mode, 
it it was a game changer. I wasn't anymore sort of battling with these rigid diagnoses to try to figure out what, you know, what was going to fix the problem because nothing's going to fix it. This is the way his brain is, but we do have to manage it. And he did need more skills and he did, you know, and now if you met him, you know, he can go to a shoe store, he can, but he might look at me and go like, mom, I, I, I got to get out of here and then mm. I, I'll and I'll run, you know? <laughs> I have a question. Does the diagnosis help um, when you say, and managing, what about the role of medication there? Does that help and, and managing with medication where we need that diagnosis to fall back on? I'm going to take a step back before we get to medication and kind of go, um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is sort of the, you know, uh, guide in psychology was created for people to be able to get like scientifically proven best practices for whatever they were suffering from. It was created with a very positive intent, right? And these were all medical doctors. These were psychiatrists who sat around a table and said, you know, how do I know that when you say schizophrenia, it means the same thing that I mean when I say schizophrenia? How do I know you're not describing someone who's manic? And they sat down and they codified human behavior into these non-functional pathologies, right? With the intent to give people the best services they could. And that is what diagnoses are for. And they are great for that. When you're advocating for your child in school, a diagnosis is a tool for advocacy. When you want to read books and you kind of need to know what general category will help you find best practices for your child. When your child's trying to understand their own brain, sometimes there are great children's books for kids with ADHD or anxiety or it helps. But even within psychiatry, and, and if you speak to any of my colleagues who are, who are psychiatrists, they'll tell you psychiatry is a field in its infancy. So, so just because you have an ADHD diagnosis, it doesn't mean that Ritalin's going to help. It may make you super anxious. It may, right, everyone, it's kind of a trial and error sort of thing. So it certainly um, gives your child the right to try medication. And for some children, that is a major game changer. And for some, it's not. Um, but it's not, it's not like a medical diagnosis. You have diabetes, insulin will help, right? There's no question. <laughs> That's because right, we know right. what it is. You have a broken bone. There, this is what we do. You have ADHD. This is what we kind of sort of try to do. And maybe it'll work and maybe it won't work. And we need lots of feedback and maybe it'll work when you're eight, but not nine. And maybe it'll work. Like it's a... <laughs> A very because brains are diverse; they're not alike. They're not. There's simple. so much wow. about brains that we don't even really understand. Like so much about brains that we don't understand. Um, I want to yes. just touch on two points that you said that I loved. Um, one was like not like, not trying to fix the kid, but just understanding that there's nothing to fix, but to understand and then to help manage any like you know to be able to go into a shoe store for instance and like I feel like reaching that point of acceptance of like I don't need to fix my kid there's nothing broken about my kid but I do need to understand why my kid is disabled by certain situations and how to help um you know manage the household stress level you know so to speak and to do that and then also just um echoing what you were saying about um you know psychiatry being in its infancy and the, the difference between, you know, it's not necessarily like you can just get insulin. And um, my understanding is that like, it's really much more of an art than a science at, at this point. And there's so many different medications. Like I know there's a antidepressant that also has like 
certain attention focusing um, components. And there's all these like different pieces that go together with that. And it's just such a fascinating, but also deeply frustrating experience because of course you're like, oh, it's X. So then let's do Y, but it's really like, let's try Y and then we'll see. Right. And I, and I think that's very important for, for parents to know. I think um, we all want a quick fix. And when we see our children suffering, we want it like yesterday. Um, and moving, there's a real journey for moving to that place of there's something wrong, I have to fix it, to oh, something's different. And I need to learn how to love that, right? Like what, what our kids don't notice, right, is that we're also on our own journey. We're also growing up in our own ways. And to learn to love someone who is daily melting down and not sleeping and not eating and causing stress, um, that is an art. Mm. That is a profound, deep journey um, that parents with differently wired kids you know, have the schuss to go on. It's a, a community of women that I work with are... Um, they're they're working on themselves in such deep ways because every single day they have kids who are going, you know, mommy, I'm so stressed out. And how do they say that? By melting down, by slamming doors, by saying, you know, you never make good dinners, by hitting their siblings, by right? And to be a parent who can go, I love you so much and we are going to get through this is like profound. Well, that was just very inspiring just hearing that because, you know, old school thought is more like, okay, go to your room, you're punished. You know, you spoke like that and here you're, you're speaking from a place of empathy of just understanding that uh, maybe this child is just behaving this way because this is how they're wired to behave. So let's talk when we're talking about wiring, you know, we're, we're using these terms. I love for you to define for our audience, you know, what is not neurodiversity and also you've used this term hidden differences. I'd love to hear what that means as well. I'm going to start with, before we go into neurodiversity and that, um, our child's behavior, this is a little dovetailing on the last question, yeah. is always communication, right? So it's not that they're necessarily wired towards bad behavior, but they are wired in a way that is stressful. And when any of us are under stress, we have high stress behaviors, right? So for some of that, that's like for mommies, that's usually too much chocolate cake snapping at our husbands. Like, you know, I've just heard of people doing these things. I've never done this. <laughs> but, um, but for our kids, it's the way that they say, I'm stressed out is through their behavior, right? And so that old school kind of go to your room, you know, what your child needs is stricter limits. It always ends up blowing up in our faces as parents when our kids are wired differently because we can't stop the stress. We can give them skills to manage their stress better. We can advocate for them so that their day, their school day, their day in the household is less stressful. We can empower them to advocate for themselves. Um, but they're not necessarily wired towards bad behavior. Mm -hmm. They are wired towards more stress. Mm -hmm. um, so when we say neurodiverse, we're saying that their brain is different enough that walking through the everyday world that is made for neurotypical people is stressful. Right, they're asked to be in environments, in interactions that accumulate stress. Now, many neurodivergent people, as adults, you would never know 
how difficult things were as kids because they find a good fit life for themselves, right? Many of my professors in my PhD program were for sure on the spectrum, Mm -hmm. but you only noticed when they tried to have some kind of holiday party, really, like they always looked like, you know, (laughs) who they were, but, but they were amazingly knowledgeable in their fields. They were even fantastic mentors one-on-one. I never saw them in a social setting in an environment that disabled them in some way or, or made their, um, difficulties in life apparent. But adults, we get a lot of choice about where we put ourselves every day. And kids really don't. They are really trapped for large periods of their day in schools that ask them to sit still, learning things that are not particularly interesting to them, um, trapped here in Jerusalem in apartments that are too small with not enough yard space, um, and and even for our kids who don't need a tremendous amount of physical space, um, you know, our gifted kids, our kids who may be high functioning on the spectrum, our kids who need to like deep dive into information, um, they're also being asked to sort of move at a cognitive pace that's that's not their own. So those are the things that bring up stress. And the term hidden differences is a term that I coined in, in the first course that I taught that was really about um, the sort of crazy making place that parents enter, which is like nobody else necessarily sees. The kids can be totally holding it together at school. They can look like every other kid in the park. And then you're left with like, what, what is going on? What is this meltdown, door slamming, sulking, over-talking, um, whatever the highest stress behavior is at home? Um, it's really painful when other people don't see it for us and also for our child who knows that um, they're holding a lot of stress in and ends up blowing up in the family because that's the safe place in ways that they don't want to. Um, As they get older, it affects their self-esteem. It affects their uh, ability to sort of predict their own behavior and and can then lead to a lot of anxiety. So hidden differences is, is sort of my way of expressing that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily see it the way that the parent does, and especially for first-time parents, um, that that leads to a lot of insecurity about their ability to parent. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Now, are there certain diagnoses that fit under this rubric of neurodiversity and others that don't? What what actually does that look like? Okay, so I, neurodiversity, neurodiverse was first used in somebody's dissertation Um in the context of autism. And so I think the term sort of kind of entered the world as a bit of a euphemism for families where someone was autistic. Um, That's definitely no longer how people use it. And I think people are really grabbing onto it because so many of our kids are subclinical, are not going to end up with a diagnosis. So it's not like neurodiversity means, you know, is really code for these five diagnoses. It's going, no, wait, it just means your brain is different in a way that accumulates stress that makes your everyday life experience until you're old enough to make a good fit life for yourself or until you find that in your adult life, right? But um, it it doesn't necessarily include specific diagnostic Mm -hmm. categories. What I will say is that um, very often when you have a child who has some brain-based difference, you end up looking for some kind of diagnosis as a way to advocate for them in school or get them whatever services they need. Um, And then 
there's also a piece of like, it, it doesn't always explain all of the high stress behavior, right? Like ADHD doesn't necessarily explain why your child um, withdraws or mopes or, right? Like it, it, they're accumulating stress one way and it comes out in another way. So I would say there are some, you know, neurodiverse kids tend to be more high stress. They tend to be more anxious because um, the world is a little uncomfortable for them. So there are some things that you tend to see with kids who I would call neurodiverse, but not necessarily like within diagnostic categories. Where there's like a lot of kind of overlap I've noticed between a different, all the different um, behaviors that not even expressing it very eloquently, like very the diagnoses. right now. Yeah. yeah, the, yeah the medical, like- the medical diagnoses are there. Um, you know, my, my graduate school <laughs> professor used to say like, you know, our, our psychological Bible is kind of a rusty piece of metal. Like <laughs> the DSM is just, it, it was made with good intent, but humans don't really fit into medical categories. So yeah, Rifki, you're exactly right. That when you look at them, you're kind of like, well, wow, you know, a whole heck of a lot of the bullet points under high functioning autism fit ADHD, fit anxiety, mm-hmm. fit oppositional defiant yeah, disorder. Exactly, exactly. And, it, and you're just kind of like, what? It, it gets really muddy and um, and keeps us in that model of like, well, I have to know what it is so I can fix it, right. as opposed to these are all things that people under high stress are going to, they're going to have a harder time with transitions. They're going to, um, you know, be more generally irritable. They're going to have more social difficulties. They're going to. Right. All of these know. things. Um, so for, for these children and for the families, so when, when they can finally get to adulthood and they can pick a life that does work for them, but as you said, they are trapped for very long periods of time, especially within the yeshiva system. You know, we have very, very long days with a lot of stressors. So how can we advocate for them in the school setting um, and to kind of ferry them through keeping their self-esteem intact and helping them be in a place when they emerge from this school program, the school phase of their life, that then they can go on and choose a, um, an adult life that makes sense for them. Like there's so many different variations as far as like, you know, with advocating within the school, like getting a diagnosis, getting the people to fill out the forms and then working with the, I mean, here in the States, then you have to work with like the state and, you know, some kids, I have a particular child who had a lot of behavioral issues, but also compensated well, so did well grade-wise. So they're like, well, he's not going to qualify for support because his grades are too good. I was like, what are you <laughs> Okay. Still needs help. Right. Um, well, that's, so- that's the, the plague of the children we call twice exceptional, which is that they're, you know, extremely intelligent and also have their different wirings. That, so they need compensation in school, but the school doesn't see it. So. Right. You know, when you say, how do you advocate for these kids in school, I'm going to break the kids down into two categories. One is they're holding it together real well in school. Their grades are good. Um, Some kids under high stress get super rigid and rule following. Teachers love that. (laughs) So then you're in that position where you're like, you know, my child really needs help with X, Y, and Z. And they're like, your child is amazing. How did you get such a wonderful child? And you're like, "Um, you know, my child comes home every day, slams the door, kicks his sister. And, you know, like, it's just, um, that I think is a very, you know, as, as much as we're laughing about it, I think it's a very painful experience for parents when the child is holding it together so well in school, 
that um, even when you know what the underlying stress is, and it can be so simple, like um, I worked with a mother who had one of these children who was the perfect child and, and she wasn't eating in school, right? Mm-hmm. Her school day wasn't terribly long, but it was really affecting the whole transition home. And, and so she very intelligently asked her daughter, what's, what's going on? And, you know, it was kind of smelly where they were eating and it was a little overstimulating and whatever, whatever, whatever. And they, right. Alex is raising her hand. I remember the smell. <laughs> Sounds of familiar. My, I remember the smell of my, of my elementary school. I am very sensitive to smells. By the so, way, our elementary school doesn't smell, but yeah, I know what it's like where the kids <laughs> like the lunches and they come home and they're starving. I'm like, how did you pull it together through an entire school day without eating? Right. Right. And it, and it really puts a lot of strain on the parent child relationship because it can take hours of your day to pick up the pieces of what happens when your child hasn't eaten. So this particular mother knew exactly what her child needed. She needed to be allowed to eat, you know, in a classroom that was empty or in the office or whatever the child even wanted to eat. You know, a lot of girls would be embarrassed. She wasn't particularly, but to go into the school that thinks she's a perfect child and advocate for her is, well, a lot of parents end up in that place. Like, I don't really want to tip the school off that there's mm-hmm. something right. different here, right? So it's a very unique advocacy problem with these hidden differences. And then the other piece is like, I, I, I'm going to be judged, right? Everyone sees my child as this perfect child. And I'm going to go in and say, she needs this, this, and this. People are going to call me anxious or a helicopter parent mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there's there's a piece that they're not seeing. So that's one set of kids that are really hard to advocate for. Um, and the other set is kids who are, their high stress behavior is leaking into school. Um, and then everyone starts on the same page. What's going on with this child? And then I think the advocacy challenge is to really stay on the same page um, as a parent to Hold that everyone in the system has a positive intent. Nobody really becomes a teacher for the money, right? So even when they're disagreeing and when they're being difficult and when you think you know what your child needs and they disagree to stay in that place of like, this teacher has a positive intent for my child. Um, And with those kids who are acting out, um, connecting with other mothers who really know how the school works, we can waste so much time trying to advocate for our children just talking to the wrong person or, you know, some schools really, unless there's a diagnosis, there's nothing to talk about. Some teachers are more emotionally intelligent. Some teachers are less so. So really knowing the system in which you are advocating um, and asking those basic questions as a parent, you know, who do I talk to? How do I talk to them? What do I say so that I'm perceived as being on board and a good mom and can really be heard Mm. and get my child what they need? Which, I mean, that, that in and of itself can be very emotionally exhausting to navigate all of those um, hurdles to jump through uh, for both for both types of children, you know, with the dealing with the additional wrinkle of perception, perception from the school as for you as a parent, you know, and I think that that can be hard to emotionally disconnect from. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 def- I definitely observe, I think, I think parents can be like you said, concerned about how they're perceived by the school, you know, and this, I, I hear this all the time, like pick your battles, pick your battles. What does that mean? Like you need to speak to the school. You need to speak to the administrator. There's an issue. If you start questioning, Oh, I shouldn't talk about this because I should pick my battles about something else that's more important. That's not communication. Like there's has to be a partnership where 
do it right, try to do it the best way. Like you said, Dr. Bass, consult with people to help you do it in the most effective way, but don't quiet yourself or silence yourself because you're worried that like you're going to be perceived a certain way by the school. Well, I think there's two pieces. I think there's the piece of, you know, if my child needs something, I'm the mommy and they're young and, and I want to get it for them. And I think the, the choose your battles piece is partially our schools are, are often really overwhelmed um, and teachers are often really kind of undertrained for, you know, my heart goes out to the teacher who has 20 kids in a classroom with an IEP, you know, and this one needs more testing time and this one needs a special place yeah. for testing and this one needs. And so I think the choose your battles is partially just the same way we do with our kids. Like you can only overwhelm a system with so many demands. So, you know, if you have a school where your daughter can herself go outside and not sit in the smelly area, so then we want to empower our children to make a choices, understand themselves, understand their needs, advocate for themselves. Um, because there is, there is a truth to, you can only go to the school so many times before people stop listening. Mm. So you have to know your schools and you have to know the relationship and you have to give good perm presence. And I, what, what a great concept. Instead of you making the phone calls all the time, can we empower children to advocate for themselves to get their needs met? That's really interesting. That's for sure. The children, older um, children. Yeah. I really like the the idea. Even fairly young kids can, can advocate for themselves in terms of like, um, you know, this is too loud for me. Can I go outside? Or this is too, and if the teacher's just tipped off that this is a child with auditory sensitivities, um, you know, even young kids can, and by young, I still mean eight, nine. Okay. Yeah. Second, third grade ish. Um, Yeah. Yeah. The, um, and I really like the, just the general empathetic approach of we're all doing our best. Teachers are also humans and they have a lot on their plates too. Just like we as mothers don't always maybe make the, most optimal choices when we're parenting our children. Like the teachers are, we're all as a system, I think just trying to do our best, all of us. And I think that giving people grace is a good way to approach that. What I found so really enlightening and helpful here, this conversation is viewing, you know, these brain differences is the way that the brain accumulates stress. Like looking at this from the perspective of stress, um, I'm just thinking of my own life, you know, dealing with certain children. I, I just think that is actually a big game changer. Um, let's talk about parents that have families composed of both neurodiverse and neurotypical children, which I'd imagine most family, I mean, maybe there are families where every single child can, you know, fall into that category of neurodiverse and they've got their work cut out for them. But I'd imagine, Dr. Bass, you can tell me from your experience, you know, there, it's normally a mix. What is some advice that you can give to those types of parents who are balancing all of those needs of all of those children? The numbers are somewhere between one in four and one in five children it has a brain-based difference um, that is different enough that moving through the neurotypical world is stressful. So given the number of children in your average Jewish family and the numbers one in four to one in five, I, I think probably most of us have at least one child who we could describe as neurodiverse, neurodivergent, differently wired, you know, having hidden differences to some degree. Um, And I would say of three, maybe four pieces of advice, the first three are really a a process, which is one, um, no matter how our family is, 
we have to kind of take this deep dive into this child. And just like you said, it's a game changer to look at it in terms of stress, right? And move out of that, I have to fix it model to, I need to understand it, right? And that sort of curious scientist place of like, what, what is so stressful for this child? And, and that even kind of takes us out of our own sort of reactivity and fight, flight, or freeze space in terms of their behavior into a place that's more adult and more curious and mm-hmm. um, more friendly as a mommy. And if and I could just that- throw in, sorry to interrupt you. Also, I need to consequence or I need to punish this behavior, right? We're moving right. away from that. We're moving away from it. Not that, that you know, I'm, I'm not so extreme as to say that some behaviors don't have consequences or kids sometimes just need to be like removed sure. to chill out. But that that difference between like, whoa, like we need to go to your room. Like, I, you know, we need to go and figure this out away from your siblings or, you know, some kids need time in rather than time out or that whole sort of place of like, we are in this together. I'm trying to figure out what's so stressful. We're trying to figure it out as opposed to like, I have to punish you out of this behavior because it's just not going to work if they're just accumulating stress all day because I'm not very nice when I'm stressed. You're not part I don't know you, but I imagine you're not that nice when you're stressed. Like we're, you know, you can't stop stress. So um, in this this process, there's first being curious about our child. And there's second, sort of checking that with them and starting to have them be part of the conversation of like, you know, um, gosh, we are never ready in the morning. Do you know what's hard about the morning? Or I have some hypotheses, or mm-hmm. right? And the, the hardest part in the second step is to believe your child, right? Like when a nine-year-old goes like, well, it's too hard to get dressed. I think most of us want to go like, you are nine. It is not too hard to get dressed, right? <laughs> it's hard to sort of sit with them in that curious space of being like, what is hard about that? You know, and and follow them through to the end to some solution that's really based on what the difficulty really is, as opposed to like, if you are not done and out the door at 7.30, then there's this consequence. Well, like now I just added a whole bunch of anxiety to an already overly stressful situation (laughs) that my brain can't figure out. We've all done it. We've all done it, but it doesn't Uh, work, right? And then then you get some parenting book that just tells you that you have to just try it longer and more, and then you feel like a worse mom and it just cycles on itself. And then everybody's anxious. And (laughs) then, then stage three is once you've sort of tried your hypotheses, once you kind of have a sense, and this takes so much time and often support, once you know, you know, this is my child within auditory sensitivity. This is my child who has food sensitivities. This is my child who, you know, really needs to be in bed at this time, whatever it is. So letting everyone in the family know whatever information is relevant to them. I tend in our community not to give um, young kids diagnosis names because you don't need everyone on the block knowing whatever diagnosis you had to get to get your child the services they needed. They may grow out of that diagnosis anyway. It's just, you know, but like he loses control of himself when X, Y, Z happens is just more relevant to young children anyway. And all, that's and also, that three-part process. Yeah, no, I was thinking, and also just because the diagnoses are, as we discussed, so kind of like imprecise in, in, in a sense and can be used only like as a tool to help, but they don't necessarily, if you say like, oh, this kid has, ODD, 
it's not going to tell a person what their triggers are or how to act around them or how to help like, de-stress the situation. It doesn't really give the same information as it is when you explain it that way. Like, oh, these are the triggers and then these are the reactions. I feel like it's much more descriptive to just name the behavior itself. For sure. And, and empowering to everyone because that now everyone can make informed choices. Right. I, again, mm-hmm. our young children don't really make informed choices. They're sort of just learning how to do that. But certainly as kids enter adolescence and, you know, you make a choice if you stay in your brother's space or if you leave, right? Like, right. but it doesn't seem unpredictable and quite mm-hmm. as scary. Um, and my mm-hmm. last piece of advice is simply um, that this is just, this is a process that just needs support and other mommies who get it because it's draining. Even if you figure out every single underlying stressor that your child has, um, this is stressful. You have a child who has more, they need more attention, more emotional energy. They need more services, more money. These kids end up being kind of expensive often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they need their, they need their space. They need their services. They need their, um, and to have, you know, a friend who gets it or a community who gets it is, um, it's a game changer because it's a lot to hold alone and I, I want to take this opportunity to normalize that I think most of the families that I work with, it takes a while for parents to get on the same page. It's usually mom who's sort of seeking diagnoses first and dad who's kind of going like, eh, like boys be boys, like, you know, she'll grow out of it. She'll not always, um, but it's a very normal part of the process to, for it to take a while before parents kind of see it the same way, understand it the same way. doesn't mean there's something wrong with your marriage. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of part of this process of understanding what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And that can create stress, right? For so us. much, yeah. so much, so much to have a stressful kid who's melting down all day and then just want to, you know, cry to your husband about it and have him go like, well, you know, did you hold a limit? Did you, you know, cause that's where that's, I think sort of the natural Gavora place that, that men go to feels really invalidating. And so, um, to just know that that's part of the process and it, it sometimes takes one spouse longer and it doesn't mean you have to, um, fight about it. You can just kind of go like, I'm trying this, I'm playing mm-hmm. with this, this, you know, and give everyone their time to come to, how they're going to interface with this. Mm-hmm. So before we say goodbye, tell us a little bit about your online course, Hidden Differences. Um, sure. So Hidden Differences is, is the first course I came up with. I'm now um, about to launch in November the Connection course. So Hidden Differences was a crash course in parenting complex kids. Then I just ran a summer support circle, which was a group of amazing mommies who were all um, you know, kind of working on really doing a deep dive into what's underlying their children's stress behaviors. And now I'm, I am working on a course called the Connection Course. So there is a free webinar that I'll plug uh, this Sunday, October 24th. It's 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and 8.30 p.m. Israel Time. And I think you guys are going to provide links, but you can mm-hmm. also go to dralissabass.com. That's Dr. I- D-R-I-L-Y-S-S-A. Bass.com. Um, and there's that in our show notes. We'll put that in our show notes. Put it in the show notes. There's also there's also a really cool um quiz on that website where you can um called the what's your child's primary stress type quiz. Mm. That's just sort of a fun way to um think about what your child's underlying stress might be. So the connection course is really um 
it's an eight week course that's sort of a deep dive into this yearning we all have for connection with our children in the context of having a particularly complex child, a child who is not always easy to connect with, um, who are still struggling to understand. And it's really um, a transformative learning experience. There's a lot of participation. Um, it's not a complete course of something in your home doesn't change. That's sort of the mantra. Um, and so it's a community. You know, there's a forum, there's there's a lot of interaction, and it's a place for mothers to support each other in this complex journey of having a complex kid. It sounds amazing. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Go to the webinar. Go to the webinar. I want to see. I want to see you all there. Well, I, I just feel really privileged that we were able to have you on today's episode and to, you know, expose our listeners to just this wealth of information. It would just mean the most to me if there are listeners out there who are like. Oh, I'm not the only one. You know, yes. I'm not the only one. Yes. Rifki and I, we're very, we, we talk about this a lot. We support, I'm very grateful to Rifki in my life to support <laughs> me in, in my journey with my neurotypical child or maybe children. I'm not even sure at this point. <laughs> and, you know, anyone who's listening, you're not, you're not alone. And now, Baruch Hashem, we've heard from you, Dr. Bass, and, and we have this information in your website and just as a resource to others. Um, this is this has been so valuable. So thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Here's today's takeaway. The term neurodiversity is all about reframing weaknesses into strengths. Think about your most challenging child because we've all got one. How can you frame his or her weaknesses into strengths? Let's expand this idea to how we relate not only to our children, but to ourselves and to other people. How can we appreciate differences as not only normal, but as beautiful? Now it's time for five questions of the normal from woman. Today's normal from woman is Mary Ukrainchik, a writer from Edison, New Jersey. If you could be any month in the Jewish year, which month would you be and why? I want to be Cheshvan. And I want to be Cheshvan because that's the month everybody looks at and says, there's not a lot happening on the outside, right? We look at the calendar, there are no blue squares, everything is white except for the four Shabbases, but it's such an opportunity to be peaceful on the inside, um, to um, regroup after Tishrei, and I wanna be the person who's so b'shalom on the inside um, that they get to hear God's quiet voice. What's your favorite mitzvah and why? My favorite mitzvahs, I don't want to leave out the other the other 611, but I'm going to name two. So, because I love this idea. I love the idea that we are commanded to love, not just obey, respect, honor, be kind to. Um, that love is the essence in so many ways of our relationship with Hashem and our relationship with one another. What do you do to recharge? So I recharge. Hmm. I don't know if I ever really recharge. I don't know if I give myself that. I probably have to work on that more. But I would say I crochet. Um, I crochet and I make things and I make Afghans because I love that feeling of being sheltered in something. So I guess that really does recharge me. And I love to read. Um, I love stories. Stories recharge the soul. What do you love about yourself? I think the, my favorite thing about myself is that I have, um, that Hashem gave me creativity. Um, 
resourcefulness and creativity. And that resourcefulness and creativity can be used to make beautiful things, to um, make life easier, um, but they can also be used to make you a generous person, a giving person. So um, I like that. What do you think the Froom world needs more of? I think we need to be more accepting, both when we look within our community and when we look outside our community. And we need to recognize that our differences do not diminish us. They enhance us, they strengthen us, they enrich us. And we need to remember that Hashem created all of us, but Hashem likes diversity. Otherwise, we'd all look alike. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all created in His image. So if we remember that we're all created with Salam Elohim, it's easy to be kind, it's easy to be accepting. And it's easier to Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you appreciated the episode. Alex and I would really appreciate it if you would take the time to, you got it, rate and review our podcast. All the links and references we made in the podcast can be found in the show notes. If you have any suggestions, feedback, or just want to say hi, you can email us at normalfromwomen at gmail.com. And we can be found on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please tell all your family and friends about our podcast. See you next episode.